Hi everyone, this is episode 10 and today we have our fourth guest on the podcast, Rosalie Hayes, who works for the National AIDS Trust. Hi Rosalie. Hi both, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Hi Rosalie. Thank you very, very much for coming on. It's really such an important topic, especially I think even now in the midst of everything with the lockdown, it's it's really, really important that we talk about this. So, um, so yeah, so how have you both been? How have you been this weekend and everything? Has everything been okay? Yeah, um, it was good. Uh, I had, I've been feeling pretty overwhelmed by the events of the last few weeks, um, but also pretty heartened by the amount of people who are kind of speaking out about against systemic racism in the UK as well as the US. So I actually joined um, the virtual, the Black Lives Matter virtual protest on Sunday, which was really inspiring. Oh, and yeah. I didn't know there was a virtual yeah, one. Yeah, it was I'd amazing. Been there. I didn't know there was a virtual Yeah, so they organised oh. it via Zoom and they had like footage from the protest and they were sharing petitions and encouraging people to donate to organisations. And yeah, it was just really, really um, informative and inclusive. And yeah, it was very inspiring. So that was really positive. Brilliant. I think that's fantastic. I've, um, I'm, I've set up a, with somebody also in the insurance world. We've set up a virtual book club during lockdown and it's my turn to choose next month. And I'm wanting to choose um, a book about systemic racism uh, within the UK and everything. And I'm trying so hard to find it and it's sold out everywhere. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying really hard. And I've got a few different books that have been suggested to me. So absolutely. I think education is so important at these times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've just, if I appear even more discombobulated than normal I've just been trying to do the chat with my seven-year-old and five-year-old about it all which was going okay and Alex really liked the statue coming down he thought he understood why that was a good thing or you know I did that you could view this either way um and then Evie my five-year-old just got very concerned that what what if what if there were fish under where the statue went into the water valid point yeah, you kind of, you prepare for every different <laughs> yeah, angle and kind of coaching, coaching style. You should make your own opinion on these things. I'll slightly guide you, but you should, you know, get to the right answer in your own way. And then, yeah, that was, that was it really. Just the, I've got, to, I've got to go and do a podcast now. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a good, good exit point. You've got to go back to her just <laughs> looking at b- pictures of like fish, just looking at you so sadly. Like, <gasps> yeah. Yeah, but I think I think I think they're getting there. But it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, as you say, Rosalie. It's um, yeah, in- inspiring, and it is. It's nice. It's actually quite therapeutic. I think having children to kind of just get back to mm. basics and almost have an excuse to relearn totally. some of the stuff, which I think is so the vital, yeah. key theme of it. But yeah. Well, my kids are just so shocked, you know, when I was saying to them about what's happening, that, and then I said to them, it's yeah. because of the colour of someone's skin, and they're just looking at me like what you know it's, it's just such a concept that they just think why why would that ever be you know it, it, they just they can't yeah. fathom why that would be an issue and it's just it's it's so sad in some ways as well to have to teach children why it's it's been an issue and why some people are bad that way and you know and and are judgmental and different things and yeah it's it's very very difficult but we moving on to more the, sorry the podcasting things um so we had our truth our life feature last week andrew do you want to do a, a recount of of it all yeah so i did um i can't remember why we had this theme there must have been some logic but um i my truth or lie was that i was first in the queue to our local mcdonald's when it reopened recently because in chelmsford we seem to be the center of global mcdonald's almost we had five reopened as the test site um so mine was a lie, although I have we have been since it's reopened, and it was amazing. 
I am um, salivated <laughs> for the 20 minutes. I think you're doing it now. Well, I, I, was, memory. <laughs> I was appalled. I was appalled by myself. But, um, yes. So, so that's a genuine confession. I've kind of, I've seen people do it. Who on earth are these people doing it? So, but it was a lie. I wasn't, we weren't quite there first. But you time. would have liked to be. Um, and yours, Catherine? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, well, well, mine was a truth. And I think it was my truth that sort of like set off this whole thing about the, the healthiness in a sense. So, yes. Yeah, so anybody who knows me, I'm six foot tall. Um, and now I am what people consider to be slim. Um, but yes, I used to be a size 22 and weighed about 15 stone. And the reason um, is, and in all fairness, I don't care any doctors. I wonder why. So whoever's listening, this is the reason, okay? I had, and I kid you not, I had 357 gallstones. Oh, my goodness. And Whoa. I couldn't eat properly for about six months. So I, was, I was like, I'd got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then for about six months, I literally could eat like rice and chicken. That was about the only thing I could eat without just being horrendously ill. And they eventually, they were like, okay, let's check your stomach out. And, <laughs> and yeah, they found all these gallstones, took my gallbladder out, and then everything was fine. The weight started dropping off, and <laughs> everything was fine. So um, I'm not sure... Of the exact relation but that was the timeline of events and um yeah i'm sure somebody will probably contact me and say that's impossible but it is possible i'm i lived it i've got the scars on my tummy to prove it so yeah <laughs> but anyway so that is our truth our life feature from from last week then the other week so rosalie can you please let our listeners know a bit about yourself please sure um so i'm the senior policy and campaigns officer at the national aids trust um, and I've been working there for just over three and a half years. Um, so we're a policy and campaigning charity that work on behalf of people living with HIV, um, working to kind of improve um, access to services and, you know, fulfilling their rights. Um, and I've led on a kind of variety of projects, so ranging from advocating for access to infant formula for mothers living with HIV via the NHS, um, I've worked um, monitoring the HIV response across Europe and Central Asia in collaboration with the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. Um, and I also currently provide casework support and advice to other HIV organisations who are supporting people who've experienced HIV discrimination. Um, and of course, I lead on our work advocating for improved access to insurance for people living with HIV. Um, so that's work and kind of outside of like to uh, cook and I do a lot um, and my most recent lockdown hobby is skateboarding so I've just taken um, so I now have a fairly impressive collection of bruises as well so that but that's that makes me nice. feel like really I learned the, I'm starting to learn the flute but it's like that well, it's kind of like puts my flute to the show it's like I'm skateboarding I'm seeing you on like railings now going oh no I'm, it's, like I'm still just working on like staying upright <laughs> Good for you. That's awesome. Well done. Well done. Um, I want to ask, like, what your best... I feel like as an underwriter, I should have a question for everything. <laughs> Don't ask for my um, best trip. That is not... Well, that just is not just because I've now found... Andrew. I've, I've found a new reason to rape someone. I, uh, there must be an increased risk of what, what's your most impressive trick or something like that. No, but um, not on I'll, the list. Um, I, I'll resist. I'll resist the temptation. We'll save the skate. We'll br we'll bring you back though if there's ever a skateboarding episode. Um, we'll, 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 we'll be we'll, we've, we've got your number. Um, so, so I think genuinely, and I, I fear of always saying this to people who come on. Catherine and I were really right from the start kind of keen that you would be the kind of ideal guest for what we're trying to do here so i'm really really pleased we've got you on today um 
we've all worked with each other in different guises, I think, at different stages around that concept to kind of really fight for fairer access to insurance. And I think whenever I've worked with you, I've been really impressed by your both the depth of your knowledge and kind of global knowledge, as you've already highlighted, and the knowledge from different policy areas, which for people like me is we just don't get insight to. Um, but also, I guess, to the title of this podcast, the, the kind of the practical, an understanding and the practical realities. And I think that's one of the things I always take when I work with charities is um, probably before I'd done it as much as I do now, there was kind of this theory that there wouldn't be the realistic understanding well we can't we can't do everything for everyone and i think when i work with people like you and leo and other people like that sorry leo from matt millen um then there absolutely is that understanding but there's also that well you know we still need to challenge and scrutinize and that understanding makes it even more powerful i think um on HIV, on HIV specifically it's been a really interesting area for anywhere insurance partly because so for the whispers quietly two decades i've worked in insurance we've you've generally heard insurers kind of coming out positively talking about what they're doing for hiv now that they weren't doing for hiv three or four years ago um and the obvious challenge there is whether we've moved fast enough whether this is the end point where we are today or whether there's always kind of something in the bank that we could be doing now um and it is also I guess just generalizing for a second, I think then it becomes a really relevant point for some of the other things we've talked about, whether that's stuff like vaping and e-cigarettes or, or you know, the, the main thing today of coronavirus where when new risks emerge or when new things happen, how we make sure we don't always have to wait kind of 30 years for data to emerge to, to do the right thing. So there's, I think there's both an interest in HIV, but even if you aren't totally interested in HIV and listening to this, then I think you can easily overlay a lot of the logic into other conditions. Um, and probably the last bit for me, intro-wise, and I think why it's so important that we get this right, was just reflecting that, so the insurer's relationship with HIV over time um in 2015 the abi published the the last i think it's fair to say the last guiding principles on hiv um which emphasized that and i quote hiv is now treated by insurers like any other pre-existing condition now that seems kind of from my perspective but interested in yours an obvious but true statement and, and even in making that statement suggests it wasn't always the case um and i think for underwriters uh business development managers advisors it's worth remembering when people apply for cover that when they if they've applied for cover at any point before the approach for life insurance may have been very very different so the questions that have been asked might have been kind of shocking frankly compared to what's asked today um but that's probably a good point to um let you speak a bit rightly about um how, how you see it and how how that compared yeah, to your experience. Absolutely. So um, back in 2017, I ran a survey as part of our research into access to insurance for people living with HIV. Um, and we found that 60% of respondents had avoided at least once in the past five years applying for a financial product um, because of fears of high costs, refusal or stigma. Um, and we from looking at the um, responses, we felt like fears can be linked in part to a lack of awareness 
of what insurance products are now available. Um, but I think they also need to be understood within two contextual factors. So one being past experiences and the other being the current levels of stigma experienced by people living with HIV today. So just to touch on the past experiences, um, as some of your listeners may know, um, for many gay and bisexual men, um, invasive kind of lifestyle questionnaires, mandatory HIV testing, heavily loaded premiums, and a refusal to accept the validity of long-term relationships were a common experience when seeking life and protection insurance in the past. Um, and this did change with the introduction of strict guidelines by the ABI in 2005 on what insurers could ask applicants to assess the risks for their health. Um, but the legacy of this discrimination still really lingers. Um, and I just wanted to read a quote from one of our research participants to illustrate this. So he said, prior to being positive, my partner and I changed from individual life policies to a joint policy. Our sexual orientation meant that our premiums went from 11 to 15 pounds per month to over 30 pounds each. We were told we were listed on an impaired life register. And this was in 2002 and prior to my diagnosis, but as a result of that, I'm fearful of coming clean with insurers. So, I mean, I, when I heard that, I just, I couldn't believe it. And I was also just like, this was 2002. It wasn't the 80s. Like, I mean, it makes you stomach yeah. turn. It, it absolutely, it grips your core. That yeah. That is, yeah. So, I mean, so that was incredibly shocking. Um, and for people living with HIV, they just couldn't get cover, um, as well as having to deal with stigmatizing attitudes and behavior. So another research participant said, um, when he disclosed his HIV, the advisor seemed shocked that I had HIV. It was as if, as if, oh, you don't look like you have HIV. The look on their face was one of horror. It was so uncomfortable. So understandably, given these experiences, is. Yeah. Many people living with HIV um, are reluctant to take out insurance policies. Um, and I do think it's important to give credit where it's due and acknowledge that insurance access is considerably better now than it used to be. But I think that also just shows ha like what a kind of low bar we were starting from. Because yes. um, today, many people living with HIV still have applications refused or offered a premium that's triple or quadruple the standard rate. And there might be a good reason for that, but they often get very little explanation as to why that is. Um, and that, you know, further perpetuates this um, perception that insurers discriminate against HIV. Um, I also wanted to pick up on the statement sorry if I'm talking too much but this is um, no, just it. this go treated like any other pre-existing condition statement I would challenge this um, because I would say that HIV isn't it still isn't treated like other illnesses um, entirely so we still see HIV included as an exclusion on lots of policies. So um, re most recently I saw one on an accident, sickness and unemployment policy. And I just can't understand why HIV is singled out in this way when other conditions aren't. Um, I, just, I just don't understand how it's justified and you know, we, do, we don't see anywhere on the policies like why, why is it that HIV is, you just can't claim for it. Um, and while industry guidance on this has changed, there's still critical illness cover policies where you can claim on a policy if you've acquired HIV, but only if it was acquired through occupational exposure or assault. 
and the underlying stigma and blame attached to those exclusions are just like undeniable in in my they're essentially saying that if you get HIV through sex which the majority of people do it's your own fault um but if you want aim for a heart attack you wouldn't be told you couldn't claim because you know you'd have too many high cholesterol meals over your lifetime so it's just incredibly stigmatizing um and i do think these exclusions are quite shameful to the industry um and i also think they would probably qualify as unlawful discrimination under the equality act but i just i don't think they have been challenged in court before. i've been so well behaved i've been quiet um <laughs> Um, I, I will continue to behave, but I do want to pick up on a few things myself as well. So, I mean, obviously, the latest guidance from the um, ABI was in 2015. I could be wrong, Rosie, but I think there's been probably some quite significant developments in the last five years in regards to treatments, medications, and data in regards to people living with HIV and, and basically, in a sense, how healthy they can be. Um, so I do think sort of like something that's five years out of date and saying five years ago that HIV was now being treated by insurers like any other pre-existing condition is, is not accurate for what was happening five years ago within our industry when it came to underwriting. And, um, and I've got to say as well, I think that there, there has been incredible things happening in our industry. You know, as you say, it was a very low bar to start with, but there has been incredible things. And I will go through a bit more in regards to what I tend to chat about on these podcasts, but there is still, and I, I don't say this lightly, and I will come on to why I'm saying this in a bit, there is still a stigma I believe that is attached to people that are living with HIV. And there's a very specific reason I say that. And I say, I wouldn't say that lightly at all. And there is, um, I'll come on to that very, very soon. So for people who are listening, who are living with HIV or just generally anybody who's listening and wants some advice, if somebody is applying for insurances and they are living with HIV, the insurer is going to want to know, well, most insurers going to want to know these main things. They're going to know, uh, want to know when the, the person was diagnosed. So um, the longer you've had HIV, uh, the higher, the, in a sense, the premium increases are likely to be if you're going to go for the insurances. They'll want to know if you've been diagnosed in the UK. With the CD4 count, um, it's the kind of thing of the higher, the better. So you can usually get insurance if you have um, a CD4 count of 300 or over, but ideally we want to see it around the 500 to 600 mark or above. Uh, the viral load, again, ideally should be undetectable. They'll, you'll want to know things like your medication. So another thing as well that we've experienced before with people is that fear of anonymity um, and again, potentially the stigma. And um, some people's GPs don't know, obviously, it's only the specialists that know. So I know for ourselves, what we have done is develop very specific routes with insurers. So if somebody comes to us and says, well, my GP doesn't know, because with an insurance application, it's standard that even if an insurer speaks to a specialist, they will also send a report about general health to the GP. Um, that, that in a sense, that report that goes to the GP will not mention anything about the HIV so that it doesn't suddenly, the, the, the data is kept as confidential as possible. We do still find with some insurers, not all, that there is a maximum sum assured that a person is allowed for life insurance and that there is a maximum term length on the policy. So that could be something like for, they may say, right, you can have the life insurance, but the most we'll give you is 20 years. That's some insurers, it's not all of them. The other thing I want to sort of quickly sort of like um, chat through is the concept of what's known as the premium ratings. So I'm very conscious and please correct me, Rosie, if I say anything that isn't easily understandable because I know that I'm in the insurance world and these are things I say quite regularly. So there's two kinds of ways that a premium is increased when it comes to life insurance. There is what's known as a percentage loading 
and there's one that's known as a per mil loading. But with the percentage, the percentage is usually the better option, but it is pretty much better, the better option for somebody who is younger age. And what that will be is an insurer will say, so with, with HIV, we tend to find that premium loadings can start anywhere from 50%. So what that would be saying is, right, if you're going to have this insurance and um, if, if it's a 50% loading on the premium, then if it was £5 originally, then what you do is you would times that premium by 1.5. So it, the £5 would become £7.50. Um, if it was 100% loading, you times the original premium by two. So £5 becomes £10. So in in some ways, the premiums don't necessarily have to, when, when you sometimes think, you know, these percentage loads is 100%, 150%, you can kind of automatically think that's going to be really harsh, actually. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the life insurance at the moment, I say at the moment, because you never know with coronavirus if things might change, life insurance is ridiculously cheap at the moment. So if it does increase by percentage, whilst it may feel unfair and it may not have been explained properly, it's possibly, it's probable that the premiums are still within quite an affordable range for, for a lot of people. It, they, the percentage of can go a lot higher. It really depends upon the control of the HIV and a few other factors as well. I'm correct, I think, in saying that most in, um, insurers shouldn't be asking how you acquired HIV generally. No, not at all. It's not something, I mean, I'll be honest, we've had some people speak to us and when they've come to us, they have just been very, very open as to the reasons as to why. Um, but it's certainly not something an advisor or an insurance company is going to be asking as to why. The other thing is the per mil loadings that can sometimes be better for people who are older. Um, not always, but sometimes. But essentially, you get your premium is increased by every thousand pounds worth of cover that you take out. So if somebody's wanting to protect a mortgage of like 250,000 pounds, that is where you're going to see. An and people are going to apply to insurers and they're not going to know, right, okay, with this insurer, if I'm, if I have HIV, they're a per mil loading, which is a extra, you know, money for every thousand pound. And this one over here is a percentage. People aren't going to know that. So they've possibly gone to an insurer with a per mil and seen an astronomical price for the premium. And it's just, potentially knowing a little bit more about what goes on in the background with these insurers as to knowing which ones are the right place you know it shouldn't be you know astronomical figures really and if it is then it's, it is really worthwhile speaking to somebody but just going back to something as well that you'd said Rosalie so so most protection providers but one don't have a HIV exclusion and what I'm really pleased to say is that Alan is currently in talks with that provider right now and we are finalizing in a sense the removal of that exclusion so that's a really really positive thing that's happening and in regards to things like um so that's uh so that's one type saying so in regards to accident sickness and unemployment cover you are completely right that some of them still have that very specifically named hiv exclusion like they would do as well like specifically named depression and anxiety sometimes but all of them all accident sickness and employment policies um will exclude um, pre-existing medical conditions for at least the first year or yeah. so um, but yes it does seem very strange that HIV is named so specifically when depression is quite uh, you know it's potentially what is it one in five people one in four people have a mental health condition so depression is something that they could regularly see whereas HIV isn't something that's going to be just yeah and it's not as prevalent yeah. I think I mean there's around a hundred thousand people living with HIV in the UK and then that includes undiagnosed people as well so it is a much smaller group yeah absolutely so I do have a bit of a case study well I have two case studies and 
the first one I will be throwing right at you, Andrew, as well. But I don't know if you want to say something first to finish off the last bit. Yeah, not just as a delaying tactic. <laughs> like, it's, it's, this bit might go on a bit longer now. <laughs> um, probably just to come, just to pick up on some of, well, both points, but especially Rosalie's. Um, so I guess the first thing is that report. I think it's that's that's available on your website still, right? It is, so yeah. So if I guess we can do Google yeah. NAT HIV and finance. It'll come up. I haven't read it in the last week. I do remember reading it a couple of years ago. And so, um, but I would thoroughly recommend it to anyone, kind of anyone who's listening to this. It's definitely worth listening to. And and honestly, as I say, not just from the HIV underwriting perspective, but sort of that broader thing of how some of those insights, I think you can easily transfer to other areas. Um, on the ABI and their work just to be clear on that i think the 2015 i think the 2015 um report i'm always wary of exactly what the things are called but let's call it a report and i apologize for being wrong was an attempt to to go this is now this should be treated in the same way as any condition cancer diabetes anything else it shouldn't be treated in a different way so there is no plan to to kind of update um now clearly there will be from time to time occasions where they go and look at conditions specifically and mental health um, is currently um, being looked at by the ABI. So I, I think just on that to say, it doesn't mean, as, as you've highlighted really, Catherine, it doesn't mean that insurers have stopped doing stuff on HIV, probably quite the opposite, but almost it becomes seen as something where, I guess in theory, the, the commercial insurance market should work to give the best results best outcomes for customers uh, aided by the legislative kind of um cliff or, or whatever the positive word for that is of, of the equality act and things like that and i think the equality act then is worth talking about because um i think a lot of this and a lot of the things that may be leading us into the case studies catherine there's a always where where we say different insurers do different things on conditions there's there's an element in there of going well and and probably the link to coronavirus and the government following the science and guess what there's a lot of different scientists is a really good insight probably into what different insurance underwriters have when they make decisions on what to do with something so you can almost you can find a scientist or economist or whatever to support pretty much anything you say but um there's that there's that second level so quality act requires you to make a reasonable decision for that individual um and it requires your company to do that signposting or pointing them towards another company isn't good enough to to, to make you qualify with the equality act and i think sometimes there's almost that over reliance from parts of insurers that people like you catherine and and, and others will step up and go, well, we can help you find something. And that's great that that exists, but lots of people, as I guess we would all know, wouldn't have the energy to make that second call or, or to, to kind of to, to believe, frankly, that person who says, oh, you should try this, these other people. Um, and I think, so just that reminder that, you know, while different approaches are entirely valid and are what will happen for any condition, seemingly more so for HIV than others um, there's still that absolute need to make your decision be reasonable for that individual maybe if I throw back to Rosalie to just kind of do your the Equality Act exemption for insurers is that um, it must be 
and this is paraphrasing, but it must be a reasonable decision based on relevant, reliable data. And um, I think that's really key because, um, you know, the issue for a lot of people is that they don't get to see the data that these decisions are based on. And they might be, you know, they might ask for an explanation as to why they've been refused or charged a certain premium and they could just be told, oh, well, you know, uh, there's higher risk for people living with HIV of dying. And, and to them, that, I mean, they, that doesn't like necessarily reflect their life experience. And also actually most mortality studies now show that people living with HIV have normal life expectancy. Um, so I think that's why the work that you're doing through the underwriting um, stream of the access to insurance working group is so important because the first step of being able to understand if insurers are complying with the Equality Act is actually getting having some transparency around that process. Um, we can't really just, you know, be told, oh yes, no, we're complying with the Equality Act, but there's no, you know, we don't, we can't see that and it's difficult to hold people to account. And then, you know, we recognize there might well be, but we need to see the evidence of that rather than just taking it that way. Okay, then are you ready, Andrew? Right, I think yeah. I've stretched it out. I've stretched I it out for as can. long as I, I can, Catherine. Yeah. I, 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 I will also say, well, I, I hadn't heard, and I, but I really like the analogy to the high cholesterol and heart attack, yeah. and, and I entirely take that on board. I do, I think, yeah, I, I, you can get numb to kind of, with anything on this, you can get numb to the statistics and sometimes the medical science, but that... It, definitely Andrew stop stalling um, so I'm going to steal that and speak very slowly tell me a case study Catherine so this one is definitely one that is very very relevant because it's a gentleman that came to to Cura last week and this is the one where to me there is this is very very much linked to there's a stigma that I think still exists and I'm not saying that this is something that's embedded specifically within a particular show or anybody particular. I just think it's something that it just doesn't make sense. Okay, so basically, so we had a gentleman that come to us last week because he's been declined by an insurer very recently for having HIV. So something just to explain to everybody as well is with coronavirus happening right now, basically a lot of insurers are changing their stances as to who and who can and who can't have insurance. And what they're doing is they're putting maximum loadings. So if somebody has maybe one health condition that will maybe equal an extra 100% on the premium. If they have something else, that may be an extra 50% and then another 50% because of something else. And those combined will put them over the max um, rating, which some insurers are looking at um, individual cases to kind of look around them just in case it is medical conditions that have no link whatsoever to coronavirus and potentially extra mortality rates. So anyway, so this gentleman, he came to us. So he pushed them to give him a reason the insurer and we have actually seen the response from the insurer so which is why I'm saying that I'm quite happy to use the words that I have used so far and the insurers um, again not saying it verbatim but um, basically they had said that at the moments of coronavirus they are having to make difficult decisions at all times and trying to prepare themselves because they need to figure out who's the vulnerable groups who's the at-risk groups due to coronavirus so they likened him having HIV as to him being somebody who's in his 80s or as a diabetic. They've said that they don't know, that the basic problem that they have is that everything is based upon science. And at the moment, basically, there's not enough science to tell them if people who are living with HIV are as, just as much a risk as people who are diabetic, who are at the moment statistically seeing to be at high risk of dying from a coronavirus. So they've basically lumped him in with over 80s, with diabetics, 
and it states quite clearly that what their decision is is based upon guesswork upon what they think is maybe a risk because as far as I'm aware I, I haven't seen any kind of data studies in regards to people living with HIV being at higher risk from coronavirus death I've seen the elderly diabetics high blood pressure um the high BMI but I've not heard anything about HIV and yet this insurer is making a blanket decision to decline people with HIV based upon what seems to be not evidence and from what we've mentioned previously doesn't seem to be a fair and reasonable decision. No, I think and and I you know I I I mean yeah I'm entirely sympathetic in agreement with you Catherine it's a short long and short of it I think and I, I absolutely, I am very happy if someone reaches out to any one of us three and shares the study that shows that what I'm saying, Catherine's suggesting, and, and like Rosalie says, it's up to her, but um, is incorrect. But certainly, I haven't seen anything to suggest that there's a clear link. And and I think always with this, you have to bear in mind we already underwrite out. I mean, Catherine, you've spoken through better than I probably could have the kind of the counts that we look at the you know the cd4 yeah. and things like that and and i absolutely can imagine there are that there will be a link between people who are really struggling already with not just hiv but other conditions and clearly that's you know so, so I, I can believe that but when you look at the kind of the group of people that insurers are already generally prepared to accept after underwriting um yeah i haven't seen any evidence uh, and as you say, then, then you enter this world of guesswork versus estimates versus reasonable assumptions, right? And I think that's the challenging bit for if, if you're relying on a quality act, then clearly as an insurer, then if, then it's how, at what point that becomes a reasonable assumption. Um, and and I, I personally, I would be uncomfortable saying that that's, a reasonable assumption based on anything that's out there today. Um, yeah, and I say that, I think, you know, yeah, on, for the HIV sector, we're also obviously very interested in understanding what the risk um, of COVID is to people living with HIV. You know, there's been lots of discussions about this and we're all trying to really stay on top of the research. And there is some studies going on at the moment looking at um, COVID patients who also are living with HIV, but they're very, very small samples. Um, you know, like groups of like 30 people, maybe more. Um, so it's very difficult to draw any conclusions yet. But what I think it would be reliable to, or reasonable to rely on um, is that the British HIV Association issued guidance for people living with HIV on whether they should shield or not. Um, and the key recommendations were that um, people living with HIV should be um, considered to be at high clinical risk of COVID-19 if they have a CD4 count less than 50. They've had an opportunistic illness um, in the last six months, so often that can be if they've um, maybe an AIDS-defining illness, people with significant multimorbidity. But otherwise, you know, they're just saying you should observe the, the rules like anyone else, so observe social distancing, stay at home if you can, and that sort of thing that they're not they're not recommending any additional precautions for people who don't meet those criteria so i would say that that's maybe what insurers should be relying on because it's what 
the rest of the HIV sector is relying on in our advice to people living with HIV. Yeah, it's interesting that shielding piece. I, I so I wasn't aware of the details of that, and I guess I guess I don't have to apologise for that because I'm not in role at a insurer. But I would hope that people who are in it, insurers are, are aware of things like that. I do think that 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 ought to be a really good estimate or proxy. Um, again, not just for HIV, but especially for HIV around things like this is I appreciate the shielding guidelines undoubtedly have flaws and undoubtedly have been made in a hurry and everything like that. But but I think as a if you're starting from a well, let's start from there and then work out where to you know if there's evidence to disprove that. I absolutely okay. agree. I think that's a really logical and and understandable place to be right and, and that's part of where we can fail getting towards the end of the show in a sense so i'm going to give us two more positive case studies so for people just to hear what can actually happen um and what can be good so it's not all sort of like doom and gloom and i do say you know whilst i've had said that last bit which is i'll be honest obviously i've been critical of the insurer and um, that is that has sent that there have been some really really good steps and there has been before coronavirus there was a really good momentum of changes happening i think about the six month prior to coronavirus came in of lots of insurers started to really really up the game and be and start to listen to the fact that you know <laughs> hiv is a completely different illness than it was decades ago first case today i'm going to do on life insurance so just very quickly it was a female life in her mid-30s she'd been diagnosed four years prior to speaking to us her cd4 count was 380 and she had an undetectable viral load so she would be arranged for her to have the level life insurance so that means it stays the same in a sense, some assured the entire time. So 250,000 over 20 years, um, and that was 18 pounds per month. So I'm using these some of these as an example of just, you know, what is potentially available out there, um, depending upon obviously there's a few different factors as well. And then the next one is the case study for income protection. And I am incredibly proud to say this was done by my colleague Crystal Skelton, and she is the first advisor in the UK to arrange an income protection policy for someone living with HIV. So this was for a male in his mid-40s and he'd been diagnosed for seven years and his CD4 count was near 1,000 at an undetectable viral load. So he protected £2,000 worth of his income every month, so that would be repaid for him. Um, and that was um, £60 per month for the cover. So there's quite a difference there. So for anybody who's listening to this and isn't familiar with insurance, so income protection is much higher in price than life insurance because you are much, much more likely to... Um, to claim on an income protection policy, the new life insurance. That there was also as well in regards to this premium, the factor into it that the person um, is living with HIV. It's very good. It's a really good start. We're not saying it's perfect. And the reason I'm saying that is that there was a minimum three month deferred period on the policy, which means that the person needs to have been ill for three months before they're allowed to claim on the policy, which does kind of it kind of gives that impression that they would assume that maybe the person is more likely to be ill more often for short periods of time than someone who doesn't live with HIV. Um, and then there's also a maximum two-year claim period. So that means for every time that that person is eligible to make a claim on the policy, they will replace um, his income for two years at the most. An important thing to point out as well with this policy is like I was saying, some maximum loadings have been put in. So before where people may have been eligible for this policy, because the maximum that insurers are allowing because of coronavirus, it is becoming harder and harder to get this policy type. So um, I know I'm a specialist, so it kind of sounds as if I'm always saying, you know, come chat to me. But, you know, if it's someone is in that situation and they're wanting that, it is such a good idea to make sure that 
you are speaking to a specialist who can really explain the differences between an income protection policy and accident sickness and unemployment policy because they can be sometimes a bit of confusion as to what they are and what they each do and uh, and just really make sure that you are getting the absolute best option that's available in the current market. Does that sound okay, Rosalie, that, those kind of options? Or is, is this something that glaring out that you think, you know what, I'd really want that changing? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you say, it's really, it is pretty groundbreaking that it is now available. I mean, income protection was one of the policies that I picked up on in our research three years ago that wasn't available at all to people living with HIV. So, you know, it's, it's really... Um, heartening to hear that it is now available. I would just say that you know, insurers do just need to keep bearing in mind their obligations under the Equality Act if they're making decisions around who to offer certain policies to. It needs to be based on good evidence. And one of the things that um, we found was that there wasn't um, very much data around how HIV affects absence from work, but the data that we did have showed that for people who, you know, are working anyway, they're generally like pretty well. Um, they, the, we didn't find much difference um, in terms of sickness absence time. So I would just say for insurers to keep revisiting um, those restrictions. And, um, you know, also I'm always very encouraging if insurers want to fund research looking at particular issues. Um, I really think they should because, you know, if they're going to make decisions, they need to make sure they're based on data and charities, unfortunately, can't just do lots of research for free. But yeah, big shout out to all the specialist brokers who do work really hard to um, get access to insurance people, particularly yourselves. Um, and I would really encourage if people living with HIV are listening. Yeah, I would always say go to a specialist broker if you can, because you're just going to get the best kind of um, deal probably with their support. Andrew, I think it's uh, your bit now. Yeah, so I, yeah, I guess I, I'd second all of that from Rosalie. And, and I think the, um, the piece there um, about evidence is really important. And, and I guess a willingness, uh, at some point, it's not okay just to go, there's not evidence, yeah. I guess is kind of, is, is the bit which is the uncomfortable truth probably. And, and I've sat there, you know, I've sat there as, head of underwriting at a reinsurer and gone well there's no evidence so so what what do you do well you, it's hard to change things if there's no evidence but yeah and I would frankly, say you know like with COVID it's it's you know yeah. I think it might be more legitimate to say we're doing certain things because there's not enough evidence I mean it's a very recent thing but HIV has been around for over 30 years at well longer um yeah. and to say oh you know we just don't have any data i don't think it's good enough moving on to to me um a bit of an announcement for me so i'm going to be stepping away from the podcast after this episode um it's probably a bit of a shock if you've been listening to episodes 9.8 um and i have really mixed feelings about it probably entirely encapsulated through the last half hour because i've i've loved doing it and i think it's been a a great experience for me personally but also we've got some really good conversations going. Um, it is mainly just squeezing five days work into three. So the sort of <laughs> co-parenting, which would make hate myself <laughs> even more than I would otherwise. But the, the just that just the fact that I almost said that word shows kind of where how how uh, screwed my mind is at times at the moment as we try and juggle all of those plates and all that. Um, so yeah, I just can't I just can't fit everything in. 
um, and I'm having to make hard decisions, and this is one of those I've taken. Um, I really hope that other people kind of step forward in different ways. And I know um, Catherine and I, and Catherine has kind of really exciting um, plans and, and some amazing guests coming up. So I think the plan is that Catherine will continue this. Um, I'll be one of those eager Thursday morning listeners um, and kind of wish it all the success um, that it deserves. I, I genuinely think the timing of these conversations has never been more critical. And there's so much movement and focus on underwriting decisions at present. Um, but I guess there is a bit for me professionally as well that being brutally honest, the insights I can bring, it, can bring into this are lessened at the moment because as we've seen, there's so much change and there's only so many different ways I can say that's why it's so important to speak to a specialist advisor. Um, because these things are changing week by week at the moment. Um, and that's kind of, you know, there's no hiding the fact that's exciting from a, from some ways, but it's also kind of, it just needs that, that absolute focus. So yeah, I, I encourage you all to, to join me and keep listening. And I apologize for all the ums and errs that you've heard over the last uh, few months. Um, I hope that Catherine will let me come back on every now and again um, to grill me on more in difficult case Absolutely. studies um, yeah but that's that's that that's but I think that everybody's going to be sad to see you go but I have to say I'm not going anywhere I'm still going to be rambling on I'll still be having people on and chatting through things and Rosie it's been lovely having you on and I think especially with this subject I, I think we could certainly speak again in probably in the not too distant future as well about you know how things have potentially changed or not changed and uh, and see where we can go forward but um we're going to start closing up with our famous truth or lie feature, which everybody absolutely adores. Um, and so we're going to do a bit of post-lockdown truth or lie. So mine is that my truth is, is it my truth? Is it my lie? Is that the first thing I'm going to do post-lockdown is go for a spa. Um, and my first thing that I'm going to do post-lockdown is to go ice skating. Um, I think my first thing, probably go to my absolute favourite local pub. Well, it's not really local anymore, but this um, Salisbury Hotel on Green Lane spent many a happy hour there. So I like to go. Very nice. Right. Well, thank you all for listening. And thank you, Rosalie, for joining us. It's been lovely to speak with you and to hear about the views of people living with HIV. I'm going to be back in two weeks with season two of the podcast. Season two, now that Andrew's gone. Yeah, he's all season one. Going to season two of my own. A little shudder to you. Um, focusing more upon people's stories of health, insurance claims, and how we can support people with more than just money. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode when I'll be chatting with another guest, please do drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk. Thank you, Rosalie. Thank you. Thanks, Rosalie.